This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. You can listen live on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app. But if you've been listening on Times Radio for the last three years, or here on the Red Box Podcast for the last seven, you'll be very familiar with Henry Zeffman. He started out, I think he was doing like work experience. He started the Times when he was about 12. Well, he's leaving us for, I don't know, the BBC or something. I don't know. He'll be back. He'll be back, I predict. So what we thought we'd do is a special episode of the podcast, Daniel Finkster and Henry Zeffman chatting about politics of the last seven years, politics of the next seven years and answering some of your questions. So here, for the final time, is these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Bring me sunshine in your smile. For the last time, Henry Zeffman's here. Henry, how are you? I'm uh, delighted to be here. Uh, Danny Finkelstein's here. Hello. Are you familiar with this? Which duo are you this week, Henry? Morecambe and Wise. Morecambe and Wise is a great answer. We had a whole spreadsheet of (laughs) song suggestions that would have lasted us years, which is now going to have to be put to one side, Henry. Well, that's it. I'm staying. (laughs) (laughs) So it is Henry's last uh, appearance on this panel. When do you actually leave the Times? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Fine. I think this is my last appearance on Times Radio as well. Is it? And, uh, well, I'm, I'm planning to say no to any other producers. <laughs> so uh, just, just want to put just that out there to the newsroom. Um, they, they appear unmoved by that uh, Oh, well, what's work is round? What's work um, is round? But, uh, yeah, I, I've... Um, I mean, I've only been doing this slot for a, for a few months, but, uh, you know, appeared on the very first breakfast show of Times Radio. There we from, are. From, from my lockdown bedroom in Washington, D.C., and I, and I think I must have been on this um, station... Well over a thousand times, and we it's brilliant, and I will miss it. You, we think you've been on Times Radio more than anyone else. Well, that's... Um, gosh, how have I spent the last <laughs> three years of my life? No, well, that, well, that's... Very even more than any other guest you're more than a, Yes, more than any... No, but even in terms of sort of single appearance, yeah, not in time... You're not talking about Stig and Asma and you. No, when, definitely not. 
But there was, I think during your first year when you were in America, probably even more than presenters, because you'd be on several times a day. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot. Because you were so pre- unimaginative I presented pockets. this <laughs> yes, one. Exactly. I, I always asked, can I have Henry on? Yeah, yeah. he was excellent. So anyway, if you want to come on and speak to Henry and Patrick, uh, not Henry and Patrick, Henry and Danny, uh, I was just thinking about Patrick McGuire. Thinking about our lunch. No, people tomorrow. could come on because they want to speak to Henry and Patrick, but they're not going to be able. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you want to speak to Henry and Danny, email me now, Matt at Times Radio, and uh, we'll get you on uh, shortly uh, with your questions. So, what we thought, what we thought, we did, how long have you been at the Times? Seven years. Seven and a half years. I started, uh, or seven and a little bit. Um, I started um, permanently uh, in the first week of June 2016, and on my first day. I went to Preston to sit on the big red bus, the Vote Leave bus. Did you? Um, and uh, politics has been pretty crazy ever since. Did you think politics would be like where we are now then? No, I mean, I, I confess that like so many other people, I sort of assumed that Remain would win the referendum. Um, I remember, I mean, that was that actually really helped... Um, inject the requisite uncertainty and scepticism and self-doubt that you need to be a good political journalist because I remember not that week but the week after being again on the Vote Leave bus in Cromer in Norfolk and um, Boris Johnson got off the bus and it was mayhem. He was mobbed by it. He basically just did a sort of organic walk around the town and people were coming out of their shops to be photographed with him and they said, Boris, I'm voting for you next week or two weeks, whatever it was. Yeah. Um, I remember turning to a much more experienced political journalist and saying, wow, this this really feels like something's going to happen here. This really feels like there's, there's energy behind the Leave campaign. And uh, he said to me, yeah, but I was on the Lib Dem battle bus last year and it felt like this for Nick Clegg. <laughs> so I was like, oh, right, yeah, fine, fair enough. Yeah, of course, yeah. Can I be clear? I went on that Lib Dem battle bus and it did not feel like there was a lot of energy. <laughs> that was the weird one we went sort of visiting hedgehog sanctuaries and he, he, Nick Clegg met like a three-legged hedgehog, which is a... <laughs> well, I'm sure the three-legged hedgehog was very excited to see. <laughs> um, Danny, it's interesting the point that Henry makes about sometimes you need... Like, but maybe maybe the ninety two elections are the same. Sometimes you need to be reminded that unexpected things happen. Yeah, and I, look for me um, more recently, twenty seventeen election, which I still puzzle away at. I think it's still one of the most interesting election campaigns. Lots of things that we even still hold on to. So, for example, in the local the relationship between local elections and general election, only a few weeks. I mean, it's not the polls in 2017 that really are confounding. The local election results in 2017 were incredibly good for the Conservatives. They pointed to a landslide, and then one didn't come. Um, and that, and I, so there, there are. Um, it's a reminder to be very careful about predicting things. Um, but one of the reasons that you go into the business of predicting is because it, uh, you can then try and identify what are the really important variables in an election campaign so you understand politics better. And certainly 2017, I know that the Corbynites talk about it for different reasons, but actually they're not wrong to point to its anomalous nature it's still really, really interesting. And if one can try and work out exactly what it was that happened there, that happened very quickly against what we normally think, for example, the rule that the election campaign doesn't make much difference. Well, that's, that, was, that was one and of the things... And it really did. Yeah, that's because that, that was definitely a truism when I sort of first started covering policies. And it still gets repeated now. The, the, you know, election campaigns don't actually matter and it's what happens in the months before. But clearly something happened in that period. So, I, I mean, my guess on that occasion was that... Was that because 
Theresa May did it very early on in her premiership. He, um, there was a lot of kind of um, air in her polling numbers. People didn't really know her that well. And what happened was that that thing got tested during the campaign, whereas normally you're about four or five years into people's view of um, the leaders of the party, so you don't get so much change. And uniquely, I think, or distinctively in that election, Corbyn was also very fresh to the public. And though there... Uh, fairly minimal preconceptions of him were much more negative than their fairly minimal preconceptions of Theresa May. That left him a lot of room to surprise on the upside, uh, whereas Theresa May could really only disappoint uh, all these people who had sort of got this vague sense that she was the new mother of the nation, but actually then on encountering her discovered that she was a bit stiff. I mean, you're so right to raise those 2017 local elections campaigns. I promise I won't just deliver boring anecdotes uh, every two minutes uh, for the rest of the show. But You have um, heard the show before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, um, I remember the morning after those local election results, which was of course during the general election campaign, um, going to a Theresa May event at a carpet factory in Hounslow, I think it was. And the only question every single journalist there asked was a variant of, how important do you think it is for a parliamentary democracy to have a strong opposition? i.e. do you think it is appropriate for you to be about to beat the Labour Party by as much as you're going to beat them? Um, And it does remind me, I think, that there are, you know, and this is always true in history and political history, but particularly the last seven years, there are so many versions of the present that we might be living in that are so different from where we are if just a few small things had gone differently. I mean, you know, if Remain had won, I actually think there's a chance Boris Johnson would have become Prime Minister anyway, but there's also a pretty strong chance that George Osborne would have become Prime Minister. If Theresa May had not done the social care policy or had U-turned a bit more artfully, um, you know, she could still be Prime Minister now, albeit with the, the same defects that became apparent during that election campaign because of the missteps she made that, that highlighted them. Um, you know, in, in 2019, uh, if the Labour Party had voted for one of... I mean, there's just all sorts of different... Worlds, and I think I think that's such a help, healthy thing to be aware of when you when you talk about politics yeah. is how exactly look, things if David that happen Cameron, aren't preordained. If David Cameron hadn't held the referendum in uh, twenty sixteen, I think it's very possible that Boris Johnson would then have become prime minister, held a referendum anyway, and won by more. Um, so they're, they're, as remain or leave uh, as leave. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean that's a good question. Yeah, uh, because certainly his, I was very confident at the time that he said that he was going to support leave, that um, there was a large element of it that related to his principled view of it. Right, He definitely had two views. One was, um, you know, related to his wife, actually, Marina, at the time, was very kind of for parliamentary sovereignty and about the rule of law and the European courts. And there was that part of Boris's work. And I think in the end, he would have gone, he went with the people that he knew and the Telegraph uh, that he wrote for, the Telegraph readers that he wrote for. And he, you know, so I think he, that I had the view that that was why he'd done it. Now I've seen some of his behaviour more recently, I do actually question whether my analysis of it was right. But you've got to, you know, I mean, that goes back to the thing with which we started this conversation. Writing as a political commentator or journalist, you've got to, you're constantly got to take into account the things that you got wrong, be very honest with yourself about them, uh, be re- analyse why you got them wrong, what they, uh, what they meant. 2017 is a good example. So in 2017, I said that Theresa May was not going to call an election when she, when she'd actually just 
asked, said that she was going to make an announcement and everyone said it's an election. And I actually tweeted it won't be an election. The reason I had that is that I had a very strong source who told me there wasn't going to be an election. And all I can say about that source is she was very confident. right? <laughs> and so I thought I really knew what I was talking about. <laughs> well, what it turns out that the, the political logic is stronger than all sources. And one of the things that you need to learn about sources is they don't always know what they're going to do. So, for example, when you're trying to do a reshuffle, you're, you, journalists are often accused afterwards they got it wrong. And actually, I noticed in football journalism, transfer people, they got it wrong. Well, no, actually, they didn't get it wrong. They were reporting what the people they were reporting on thought they were going to do at the time. Yeah. And then they didn't do it. So, And all you can do is do that. Some of the most frustrating stories I've written are what I've taken to calling self-falsifying stories, i.e. stories that in the act of you writing them, uh, it means that the thing you've written is being discussed doesn't happen because, you know, it blows the lid on something that might only happen. And reshuffles so give, a really give, good give example. example. I'll give you a famous example, which I came from Please. the United States, was, was that Ben Bradley announced that uh, Lyndon Johnson was intending to fire J. Edgar Hoover as head of the uh, FBI. And when that story appeared, Lyndon Johnson called a press conference, uh, announced that he was appointing J. Edgar Hoover for um, life, uh, called over the Washington Post correspondent and just said, tell that effort, uh, Ben Bradley, um, that uh, I did this, that he can go and F himself. Wow. And he did it for that exact reason. So that was a self-falsifying story. Can you think of any examples of yours, Henry? Um, none that I particularly want to draw attention to. But, I mean, in general <laughs> terms, it's, it's reshuffles. Reshuffles, reshuffles are great examples of that because uh, if you accurately identify discussions that are going on which might involve someone being sacked. It gives them time to plead their case, organise, allow people to intercede on their behalf. Yeah. Have you found it thought of another one? Yeah, no, I've got an example of an even more bizarre example. Where David Cameron wanted to appoint Ian Duncan Smith, move Ian Duncan Smith's uh, job from being work and pensions or what he whatever that job was called at the time to being Justice Secretary. And he gave him overnight to think about it. And on the um, television that night, on Newsnight, I speculated about why that, that that move might take place. Because I'd heard Nick Robinson say it on the television. I think his, he got that himself from Ian Duncan Smith. Anyway, Ian Duncan Smith heard this, assumed that this was therefore a plot that had been launched by George Osborne, and which I was the, uh, who's a friend of mine, and whom, which he thought I was being the spokesman for, and told David Cameron he wouldn't accept it as a result of that. Um, so, you know, these you can you can sort of become an actor in your own story. But it's sort of a separate thing. But another interesting thing about sourcing, and I think this is why you're you, you are good, Henry, because you maintain a healthy scepticism of what people are telling. Thank you for acknowledging. Yeah, seven well, years well, into us I being colleagues, that, that I, I smuggled am that. Good. I smuggled that. I smuggled that. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. It's as close as you'll get. Um, is scepticism of why is this person telling me this? So right. there are two sorts of sources on stories, which I don't think pe people observing politics always. There are some people telling you stuff because they've got a, a motive and they want you to bite that or whatever. There are other people who tell you things without realising what they're doing is is delivering a story. I remember once when I was at Mail Online, wrote a story that Vince Cable was telling people that he wanted to be Home Secretary. The way to sort it, he wanted Theresa May's job in the next reshuffle. It was about time the Lib Dem was in charge of the Home Office. He wanted the Home Office job and he'd sort out, you know, student numbers. And his special advisor phoned me up and went abs absolutely livid, saying you can't possibly... 
uh, have written this story. You haven't. I know you haven't spoke to Vince. So you know how can you be writing this as a story? Who told you? You know who who's telling this? And I said you did. You told me <laughs> two nights ago at a drinks reception. And I said, are you saying that this is untrue? And he said, no. And he's completely recoiled because they've been chatting away. And I've always taken the view, if you are a special advisor for a cabinet minister and you are talking to me, you are working and I am working. And if you are telling me it is a fact that Vince Cable wants, uh, wants someone's job, <laughs> that, is a, that is a... But there was no, one of my favourite ever moments was pointing out that the story that they were cross about had come from them. Can I add a third motive Go on. for people who brief? which I think people are really not aware of, understandably, which is motiveless briefers. Yeah. The, the number of stories I get from people who have... I mean, obviously, I don't press them on what... But, you know, have no particular interest in telling me things. Is that, is that, 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 that Gavin and Stacey meme, Pam, Shipman, you know, it's all the drama, Mick, I just love it. There's so many people in, in <laughs> Westminster who just love the drama and just yeah. want to talk because they like comparing notes with someone else who's well-informed. Um... And they might realise they're talking out of turn, but their their instinct for gossip and drama, which in many cases is probably what propelled them to Westminster and to politics in the first place, just overwhelms their their professionalism. And and, and I'm very grateful that it does. <laughs> <laughs> it says, we were talking uh, about this yesterday, but um, journalists who go into politics are the worst because they know exactly what you're doing. Mm. And they're often... Um, most of the journalists I know who've gone into politics as spin dots and that sort of thing are terrible sources because they know what's a good story and they're not going to let it slip. What you want is a guileless person who just tells you what's going on uh, without realising that it's news. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all the, lots of these leaking... The other reason what it happens is that if you ring somebody on a story, they often don't want to admit they don't know. So, <laughs> so sometimes you're ringing somebody who's widely described as close to the Prime Minister, for example. Actually not that close, yeah. but they obviously trade a lot on the fact that people think they are that close. So when you ring them and ask them, is X or Y going to happen, they don't know. But they're not going to say, I don't know. Uh, they'll say, uh, oh yes, I've heard that too, or <laughs> yes, that's true, or no, it's not true. So uh, Because they don't want to admit that in fact they... Literally yeah. don't know. So that's the last seven years in a sort of roundabout way. What does politics look like in the next seven years? Where are we in 2030, Danny? Well, we can't follow what we've just said about scepticism and how difficult predictions are with a load of confident predictions. <laughs> right. Everything is probabilistic. Yeah. Okay, but if you have to make a... Se- and the more that you add on top of things, the yeah. more that you're multiplying the probability. But let's start with this. I think it's very, very likely we're going to have a Labour government within uh, the next um, 18 months. And the result of that, you'll probably get a change of Tory leadership the Tory party in my view is likely possibly to tack right it might not it might it might realize that's a cliche and only go part of the way to it there'll certainly be a battle for its soul that will take place um meanwhile the Labour Party all the problems that the Tory party have immigration inflation right, the relationship with the European Union the Labour Party is just about to get exactly those problems in government so it's not too difficult to see three to four years ahead I think yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, um, not to sound too much like a, a Marxist historian, but one thing that the last few years have, which is not a phrase I've ca- ever said on this. catchphrase again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing that I think I've learned from the last year or so, um, which, which relies on me, to be clear, agreeing with Danny, obviously, that it is very likely that Labour win the next election in some form or other. Um, and that is amazing, given the 2019 general election result was both so good for the Conservatives and so historically bad for Labour. 
And you know, there's various reasons why the Tories appear to have stuffed it up and why Labour appear to have been able to capitalise, etc. But also, it does suggest that there is something amazingly remorseless about the electoral cycle in post-war British history, with the exception of the sort of 1970 to 79 period or 1964 to 79 period, which is that you get three or at a push four terms and then the voters say, no, thanks, we'll have the other lot. So, but actually, on that actually, basis... If you, if, you take, if you align the 70s model with the sort of 2010 coalition model, that you do get long stretches and then a bit of like neck and neck model yeah, although and I then think another long stretch I, I, again. I kind of am inclined, with apologies to the Liberal Democrats, to, to lump the 2010 to 15 coalition government in with... Uh, you know, that being four terms, albeit not four full terms of Conservative government. Yeah. Um, because I think it was the Conservatives being electorally rewarded in 2015, as it were, for what the Conservatives had done. Um, but th- that, would in- that would incline you to think, or if you're starting to sort of draw grand historical rules, that you know, Keir Starmer is not just likely to be Prime Minister, he's likely to, to be Prime Minister for more than one term, for more than five yeah. years. Um, and that... I find quite disorientating because, you know, we've spent years talking about Keir Starmer's deficiencies, which are very apparent in many ways, uh, and Labour MPs are all too keen still to um, press upon me. Uh, But it also feels likely that he then becomes one of the sort of major figures of the next era of of British politics. If he does more than five, six, seven years as Prime Minister, if he becomes the uh, fourth Labour leader to win a general election and the third to win two... Uh, sorry, that's not true, Atlee 1950. Anyway, you know, the fourth to win two. Um, th- that, that's very yeah, significant. Yeah. And, I've, and I I and I guess my rambling prediction here is, is, is that we're going to spend a lot of time trying to understand what makes Keir Starmer tick, because yeah, we're yeah. going to have to. Yeah. Also, by the way, yeah. one other thing that's really important is, is, is the most important election that's going to take place in the next three years is in the United States, mm. right? So whether or not Donald Trump is elected, re-elected as president of the United States, is very important to every to lots of British public yeah. policy and in defence and our in our international stance. So that is, uh, and that's extremely hard to call, and it will have a big impact. But I think Henry is completely right. I felt that from the beginning of yeah. Keir Starmer, actually. Danny and Henry, there still to come. We put some of your questions to Danny and Henry. That's next on the Red Box Podcast. 
This is the Red Box Podcast then, and we're reflecting on the fact that Henry Zeffman is leaving the Times after seven years. He's been such a star on Times Radio. We think he appeared on Times Radio more than anyone else, more than a thousand times, he claims, and nobody else has got the time to check his figures. So let's have a little listen back to some of his highs and lows on Times Radio. We're going to go all the way to Washington now and join uh, Henry Zeffman, Times Washington correspondent. He was supposed to be on an hour ago. He's had an extra hour in bed. It's afternoon here, but good morning, Henry. Morning, Matt. We've only just begun. <laughs> I feel like we need to, you know, Star Spangled Bangers to strike up before you, uh, you come <laughs> on, lad, and join us. We clear that choir was recorded before singing restrictions were put in place. Uh, the American anthem can only mean one thing. We crossed the Atlantic to speak to Times Washington correspondent Henry Zeffman. Morning, Henry. The most enduring moment of the night might belong to a fly, which landed on Mike Pence's hair at one point and then stayed there for about two minutes, if not longer. So right, here's number two. Cox or Commons. The Attorney General might well be expected to tell his colleagues that there was no respectable argument. Heavy Zeppelin, was that Cox or Commons? I think that's Cox as well. Can you get to number 10? To be Chancellor, Money, Money, Money by ABBA peaked at which position in the UK charts? Okay, I have no idea. Um, I'm guessing from the fact this is a question, it's not number one. Uh, So let's say number two. (gasps) Henry, you've got it wrong. I think the common theme here is Boris Johnson likes a big reshuffle, but also this is a man in complete control of the Conservative Party. John, can I bring you some breaking news rather than tell you about that? Sajid Javid has just tweeted his resignation as Health Secretary. We're going to have another go at the egg and spoon race. (laughs) Today, we've got Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent of the Times. How are you, Henry? Full of regret already. (laughs) And Ian Murray, Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland. On your marks, get set, go. Ian cheated. You did not go around the full... But you've both dropped your eggs. I think we need to give that as a win to Henry. You're going back to bed now, Henry. Now I'm going to write a story about uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, who who was the winner? Uh, I don't recall. I mean, obviously, mini golf was the winner, uh, but someone else won uh, by six shots, so um, very much well done, me. Hi, Matt. Well, we touched down in Kigali just after 7.30. Good morning, Matt. This is Henry Zeffman here, calling you from Tokyo Haneda Airport. Hi, Matt. I'm sending you this at approaching 4am UK time from Liz Truss's jet. I'm actually in the toilet and a very nice plain toilet is too. Uh, There's some flowers which are real, not plastic. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Do you know what film this is from, Henry? I don't, I'm afraid. (laughs) You don't know what this is from? No, I genuinely don't. I don't Men know. in Black. When they said Men in Black, I've seen then. I've seen Men in Black two, but right. I've not seen Men in Black one. <laughs> Are you saying Danny is the Tommy Lee Jones Tommy to Lee my Jones. Will, Smith? Will Smith? Here's a trivia question for you: Who was Tommy Lee Jones's college roommate? Any idea about that, Henry? No, I've seen Sweeney Todd. Yeah, Henry will then tell us that uh, that actually Dennis Waterman <laughs> once endorsed the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dennis Waterman! I'm a big fan of new tricks. Which Margaret Thatcher cabinet minister's son composed <laughs> that music? <laughs> I give up. Have I don't mean by it? that I give up on the question, I just give up altogether. <laughs> <laughs>
I briefly went to the same gym as Keir Starmer's father-in-law. So there you go. There you are, Henry. Nice little trip down memory lane. Your hi- your favourite of all those highlights? Um, I do... Uh, well, actually, my most notable, because it still infuriates me, is getting the um, ABBA question wrong. <laughs> Uh, and can you get to number 10? Because that was like the third or fourth time you did that quiz. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it was on the first... So you... I would have been the first Prime Minister. I was the first Foreign Secretary. Yeah. Um, and obviously cabinet appointments have been devalued since by Liz Truss. But... Uh, <laughs> um, it was, uh, anyway. it, was this, it was day two. It's why we didn't even... Not that have, I'm competitive. We didn't have the the, uh, the proper music. That's we didn't right. have the no-no-nos. I just told people, no, that's wrong. It was the second day we were on. My favourite is still the fact that we did a quiz on the show called Cox or Commons. I don't remember what I was trying to remember listening to yeah. that was what would the so non- you'd you'd reported that Jeffrey Cox had uh, been doing work oh, from was, his parliamentary it, and office and it was clips from an yes. illegal case that had been live streamed yeah. that he'd done so in the, the British question Virgin was Islands was Jeffrey Cox working for Jeffrey Cox or for the House of Commons that's right and you had to guess and work it out it's amazing amazing we're still on well it. what fun we've had what fun we've genuinely had. and uh, you've done two egg and spoon races. Yes, and uh, I won both of them. As you heard there, Ian Murray, the Shadow Scotland Secretary, uh, cheated and therefore was disqualified, albeit not by you, but by any reasonable court of public opinion. Uh, And then the year afterwards, I legitimately, fair and square, beat David Simmons, um, Conservative MP. I've actually beaten Sebastian Coe in the Reagan Spring race. Have you? Yeah, he dropped the egg, the idiot. Um, (laughs) The the thing about... uh, Egg and spoon race is the one thing that rewards people who are mediocre in sport. If you're yeah. very bad Yoka. at sport... Mediocre. Yeah, oh, yeah. dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> if you're very bad at sport, you lose anyway, right? Because you, you know, people run yeah. outrun you. And, but, and if you're very good at sport, like Sebastian Coe apparently is, <laughs> you run and drop the egg, which is what he did. Um, Steve Ovet probably wouldn't have dropped the egg, but Seb. Dropped the egg. And I beat you at mini golf. It's on tape. Well, on that occasion, you yeah, beat in me mini golf. I think one of my fondest memories. I, 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 is there a watershed on Times Radio? Uh, well, I depend, <laughs> well, one of my swear. fondest memories is uh, it's good training for where you're going to not is, swear is, on live radio. That's true. Is the um, mini golf game, and Danny was there too, as was Matthew <laughs> Paris. It's my birthday for your birthday in at, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Labour conference. There's about te- about ten of us. Ronovich was, was he there? No, no. Esther Weber was there. Patrick es- Maguire was there. No, he wasn't. wasn't Ollie he? Wright was there. Francis anyway, um, shall we say it was an um, adult themed, adult themed mini golf course, which I'm not sure anyone realised before no, we arrived. We set off thinking it was just going to be a fun evening. We ended up basically taking our mini golf balls through a sex dungeon. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember thinking, <laughs> I, I, I mean, this was maybe 2017. Yeah, I remember thinking. You know, I've only, I'd only been at the Times for a year and a half at that point or something like that. And, you know, if you told me two years ago that I'd be playing <laughs> mini-golf in what is effectively a, a, a torture garden Can I just point with out, that Danny Finkelstein thing, and Matthew Paris. <laughs> that wasn't the thing that stuck out to me. What stuck out to me was how unbelievably competitive Henry is. <laughs> yeah, he really is when it comes yes, to crazy golf. He is, it, yeah. Do you think it's just about getting his scooping his colleagues, but it isn't really no. even the mini-golf. He was like, I've forgotten who it was who challenged you for the title, maybe Matthew. Matthew Paris Matthew won. Paris was also and then he Matthew's wrote, also incredibly competitive. He was very competitive. Whereas I, you know, my... I, I, I basically couldn't care less. It's only a game. And in fact, one of the problems, the thing about games, that it reduces games. If you don't care about winning, 
all games become quite boring. <laughs> um, and so I couldn't care less who won that game. And after a while, I was like, okay, I think I've had enough hitting this ball round. Yeah. Well, Matthew and I stared yeah. ahead, it was, it was refusing to talk to each other. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. Right, uh, that's enough chip down memory lane. Uh, let's get some listeners on. Uh, we've got Rob on the line. Morning, Rob. Hello. Uh, where in the world are you, Rob? I'm in Chelmsford in sunny Essex. And what would you like to ask Danny and Henry? So, gents, um, with your political strategist caps on, I think that Rishi Sunak would be wise to call a snap election, perhaps later in the year, if he hits any one of his pledges, because, frankly, things are going to get worse in the economy, in all probability. And him being a spreadsheet man, you'd think he's minded to do that as well. What, what do you reckon? Danny? But it's very interesting because I have. A, I, it's obvious to me in retrospect, having worked when I worked for John Major, that if we hadn't gone long, right to the end of the period we had in office, right into 1997 uh, and right into the May period, we, we probably would have lost by a bit less. It got worse all the time as we carried on. The problem is that any time before then, you were calling an election knowing you were going to lose and nobody wants to do that. They're under a lot of pressure from MPs not to do that. They don't want to do it themselves. They always think something's good's going to be round the corner. Now, I, so therefore, it is definitely the correct piece of strategic advice, which is there'll come a point where um, if the economy doesn't pick up, if, if you think predictably that it won't, then you probably ought to go, you know, possibly in May rather than pushing it right to October or even beyond that to December. Uh, but it's extremely difficult advice both to proffer and to and to take yeah. one of the reasons that politicians don't want to take that it's a bit like there's there's a thing about penalties right in football if you shoot the penalty in the middle of the goal that is the most likely way to score but it's the most embarrassing way to miss and so people <laughs> don't do it so in exactly the same way prime ministers do not wish to call an election at a time where people will say i can't believe you called an election at such a stupid time and whether they spend the rest of their life with people saying um you know you were so hubristic you thought you'd win in may and they can hardly go into that election saying, I think I'm going to lose. They have to claim they're going to win. So my view is that is sound advice, but it won't be taken. I suppose the other problem, Henry, is that if you're... Part of the reason why you'd go long is because if you think you're going to lose anyway, it's nice to spend another year being Prime Minister than not. But I don't think that Rishi Sunak does think he's going to lose. Oh, interesting. Um, I appreciate that any dispassionate analysis of of, of the situation would... Uh, at least make him think that he stands to lose if things don't change. But I, in particular on um, the G7 trip to Japan a few months ago that you heard me talking to you from a toilet from in that montage, um, he um, he did a very good job of convincing me and Downing Street more generally, sorry, not that he was specifically convincing me, but the, the vibe of the travelling party was, was that they really do think he's going to turn it around. Now, it's turned more fatalistic since then. The economy, inflation in particular, um, looked more challenging than they thought it was. But you know, I'm, I'm sure Rishi Sunak has not accepted the inevitability, uh, inevitability of his defeat. Uh, if he were to accept the inevitability of his defeat, then I think that um, uh, that analysis would be right. But, you know, prime ministers don't just think about the health of their political party, right? They think about themselves. So even if Rishi Sunak did think that he was certain to lose, would he rather be prime minister for two and a half years or one and a half year. I mean, you know, I think uh, I, I think human point. nature would overpower your sort of party instincts there. Uh, uh, coupled with a hope that something might turn up. Right, and yeah. it might, and of it course. Might. Yeah, the longer yeah. you go, it is true that that sort of, you know, 
tiny slither of chance that something turns up. Yeah, yeah. Still there. Well, thank you for that, Rob. Great question. Uh, then we've got another one. We've got Justin on the line. Morning, Justin. Hi, lads. Uh, just a quick one. Can Hang on, just, just a minute, Justin. Have you ever been called a lad before, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> you forget that I'm a director of a football club. Oh, yeah. that's true, yeah, which we're not allowed to discuss. Uh, sorry, go on, Justin. Where, 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 where in the world are you? I'm in Chapel Allison in North Leeds. I'm a fishmonger. There so we go. You're a fishmonger. Lovely. So do you listen to Times Radio while you're mongering? Uh, when I'm in the back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't want it in front of the customers in case you, yeah. No, that's all, that all counts for listeners. Have it out the front. Arrange the fish so it spells out Times Radio. Uh, Justin, what's your question? Uh, can you promise me that the next election won't feature Brexit? I didn't care about the results, but I hate Brexit. I just hate everything about it. I hate people talking about it. And when you work in fish, everybody's got an opinion on Brexit. So. <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. Great question. So um, it's certainly the view of some people around Rishi Sunak that um, people's view of get Brexit done, the most important word in that was done rather than Brexit, and that people don't have much of an appetite to talk about it, that the focus needs to be on the economy. Other people, of course, in the Conservative Party do think maybe there's juice in trying to persuade people in the North that... Um, Keir Starmer would reverse parts of Brexit. I think the first group of, are correct. I think that there's absolutely very, very little to be gained from by the Conservative Party deciding to make them try to orientate around Brexit at the next general election. But they're going to be possibly quite short of themes, and I can't imagine they'll resist that. Especially, Andrew, if it's an election which is about your base, it might annoy some people, like Justin, but if if getting your Tory vote out, you can fire them up with talk of Keir Starmer wanting to go back into the EU. Yeah, look, I think, Justin, you're going to hear the word Brexit a fair amount in the election campaign, but I don't think it will be a capital B Brexit election in the way that 2017, to a certain extent, and 2019, to an enormous extent, were. Um, partly that's that Keir Starmer is so determined to close down the issue. So you might hear him saying, you know, under no circumstances are we going to reverse Brexit or go back into the single market or the customs union. Um, which, by the way, will get him a bit of pressure on his sort of left liberal flank, but that they've decided they can deal with that. Um, so, look, I think it will be a theme, but I do think it's going to be an economy election, and that is the first time that's been the case for, for a few cycles. So, uh, a bit of good news there, Justin. All right, cheers, lads. Thanks for the answer. <laughs> cheers, uh, take care, Justin. Good to hear from you. Uh, right, next we're going to do some more questions uh, that you've uh, sent in before we finally say goodbye to Henry, stripping from his pass. <laughs> I just handed back my laptop. Have you? Oh, do you give that a good clean? Uh, right, you've been sending in some more uh, more questions. Uh, this one is from Jonathan on Twitter. If the polls are right and it's a crushing defeat for the Tories, where do they go next? Surely they need to move backwards towards Cameronism. Oh, in fact, that's from Tony on Twitter. Uh, we've sort of slightly touched on that, Danny, but do you think that's right? That the tour, that there will be a tension, won't there? Do the Tories move to the centre or do they move to the right? Yeah, there will be. Um, it, it was. It's interesting. An awful lot in politics depends on quite a narrow thing, which is who wins the leadership. And actually, that is, that's a little bit difficult to predict. There's no one faction of the party that has a standout candidate. And, and that is important in terms of determining who who wins and I think you know, in which direction the party will go to and the recent experience of choosing Liz Truss because she was the candidate of the right but turned out not to be good enough to hold the post which people on the right had slightly suspected before they uh, appointed her right she's I think actually quite an intelligent person but she's not capable of that that wasn't capable of that of that job and yeah. therefore 
they, and they kind of slightly suspected elected her anyway because she was the right-wing candidate and that it was a disaster. And I think they'll be quite leery about doing that again. So there are quite a few dynamics. It's a little bit more difficult to predict than it seems. So on the surface of it, you think, well, what happened before will happen? You know, the Conservative Party will decide that it lost because Rishi Sunak put up taxes and wasn't um, and they'll, and wasn't right-wing enough. And there'll certainly be a strong element of that again. But it has to unite behind an appropriate candidate. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting question. So Simon in Suffolk says, who should be the next leaders of the Conservatives, Labour and Lib Dems? And should the Lib Dems even bother having a new leader or just give up? Uh, I mean, the ne- next leader of the Tories, Henry. Well, look, I don't know about should, but, but um, you know, I think you can map out the contours of a, of a leadership election um, you know, fairly plausibly at this point. Um, because, you know, as Danny says, you'd have a candidate of the right, um, who I don't think necessarily will be Suella Braverman, by the way. It's sort of widely assumed that she would be, but I think, um, you know, even on the right, there is some discomfort with her record as Home Secretary so far. If if that changes, perhaps it could in the next 18 months, then maybe she'd be a stronger candidate. But I'm not sure that's Suella Braverman. But but you would end up with a, a candidate of the right, You'd end up with a candidate of the sort of Tory left, the wets, the One Nationers, whatever you want to call them. I think that could plausibly be Gillian Keegan, perhaps, currently the Education Secretary. Um, Various other people it could be, but she's probably the most senior, most One Nation person at the moment. Um, And then you probably have someone from from the sort of centre of the party who would um, offer to unify those factions. And I think at the moment you'd say that's probably James Cleverly, Foreign Secretary, Brexiteer, but not necessarily massively dogmatic about it, loyal to Boris Johnson, then loyal to Liz Truss, then loyal to Rishi Sunak, um, with the sort of inherent stature that a few years as the UK's chief diplomat confers. Um, But I think the key question, as we touched on, I think, last week, on which of those factions... Uh, prospers in at least the parliamentary phase of the contest, contest um, is which Tory MPs lose their seats, is how bad the defeat is. Yeah, if the that, defeat that is confined the to the, yeah, the just the politics. red wall seats, then the sort of left and centre of the Tory party are a bit stronger. But if the defeat goes much broader, if it's a 1997-style defeat, then it starts to become a bit, um, not random, but a bit more arbitrary what factions... The, the, the Conservative Parliamentary Party's members sort of loosely yeah, aligned so to it. So that's why it's so difficult to tell. And, and it's so... The leadership is so important in setting the direction of the party will go on after that. I, I must say, I think James Cleverley is a very, very likely person to emerge. Because, you know, one possibility is it doesn't split in the way that you do, but you get somebody come through the middle and everybody goes behind them. Although whether that's really him... So, uh, you know, I think, I think it's extremely open... Um, without any one obvious person and without any obvious direction. But I think you then get... James Cleverly, I think, would lead the party a little bit possibly in the way that William Hague did after the 2000, after the 1997 defeat, if it was big enough. The other thing that might happen is if the Conservative Party's defeat is big enough, no one wants to hear from the Conservative Party at that point. I remember William Hague, I remember because I worked for William Hague, thinking this guy is really excellent, he'd be a very good Prime Minister, but nobody could conceive of him. And I think that's obvious now. Uh, I don't think people could conceive of him as being Prime Minister because the Conservative Party was so far behind, no one was interested in him. Yeah. So... You know, a lot, Henry's right, a lot depends on the size of the defeat. In other words, what we're saying is that in answering this question, there are too many variables to be able to make a, pos- yeah. a proper... One other variable that we should mention, prediction. though, that now that I think of it, is if Labour win, but they win very narrowly, 
for example, in a hung parliament scenario, or indeed just a small majority, then the Conservative parliamentary party may think, actually, this government could collapse any minute soon, any, any minute now. It probably won't, but they'll want to think that it could. And therefore, we need someone who could become prime minister... Prime Minister straight away, um, should that government collapse or go into a general election campaign straight away, should that government collapse? And then that makes it more likely that it's someone senior, someone who's held senior ministerial office. But Danny, I also wanted to ask you, do you you think there's any circumstances in which Rishi Sunak would leave Downing Street but want to stay on as Conservative? Well, I was just, you know, yes, I think there are. There are circumstances in which... So uh, what was interesting to me is after he lost to Liz Truss, there was a widespread... um, view that he would quit politics and go and live in California. And even I, and I'm, I've known for a long time, thought that was a possibility. And when I spoke to him, that was absolutely not what he thought. He was very interested. He was going to remain in Parliament. He, you know, was tenacious about it. Um, and even when the when the job of becoming Prime Minister became, it looked like it might become vacant, you know, his question was, would it be better to lead the Conservative Party out of opposition or would it be better to lead now, which he understood wasn't really a choice. You don't really have a choice. It came up. So I think if the circumstances were right, in other words, there was an extra expectation he would do really badly in the election but he did did in fact do substantially better than that still lost power because the conservative party didn't win office let's say in circumstances and i i'm not anticipating these that the conservative party gets roughly the same number of seats as labor maybe more maybe only slightly less in those circumstances and and as i say i don't think that's what's going to happen but let's say that it did happen then in those circumstances the conservative party could imagine could you know he could i could imagine him wanting to stay and being allowed to stay but you know i think that my central expectation for a quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, right from the beginning of the, when Boris Johnson was elected, I thought there'd be a Labour government, but my ex- expectation now is that it'll be quite a big... Uh, there'll be quite a big plurality for Labour. OK, let's just go through it. It's a really good question. Thank you for that, Simon. Uh, a few more uh, quick questions. Uh, this one from Richard. Does Danny keep killing off his partners? And is, if so, what is his preferred method? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry to lose... Uh, Henry, having just uh, got going on this, because I do, I think the BBC, I understand exactly why the BBC's decided to uh, recruit him. He is, you know, unquestionably one of the best analysts around, and you can, and has an immense fund of knowledge. So it's really, really uh, exciting each week to learn from him the things that he knows. I, f- I find that great, and I'll, I'll miss that a lot. But hopefully, we'll all uh, get a chance to hear it uh, on on the news in in different forms. Very good. Uh, somebody on the email says, I want to ask Henry, what's your favourite political scoop? That I've ever had? Yeah. Ooh. I don't I should have a pat answer to that, <laughs> but I actually don't. Um, the truth is... I is hope that... you did better than that in your interview. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently. Have you ever had uh, any scoops? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, look the, truth, the truth is... Um, oh, actually, I know what my answer is. It's... Uh, Fiona Onasanya, who was briefly the Labour MP for Peterborough, um, but then ended up being convicted of, I think, perverting the course of justice by getting her brother to take some speeding uh, points for her. Um, And she sent a WhatsApp to the entirety of the Parliamentary Labour Party comparing herself to Moses um, (laughs) and saying that, like Moses, she would be vindicated in her time or something like that. Um, It was a lot longer and a lot more colourful than that. And every Labour MP had this message. But I was the only person who, or the first person to get it. Um, 
some period Did of time Did you also later. threaten someone with a baseball bat? That wasn't you? No, no, and uh, yeah, it wasn't her either. Oh, um, okay. But um, <laughs> To be clear, that was not her. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah that was that was funny. Uh, last question then. Jonathan says, would either of you have a 6am airport bevy before going on holiday? I don't drink. I know. Diet Coke, though, I would. What, 6am? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would and I have, it, and my mum's going to be annoyed now. I just shall. To that. Yeah, very good. Um, well, I look forward to us having some 6pm bevies uh, tomorrow, Henry, for your last day. Uh, that's, um, that's all we've got time for. So we just have to say goodbye to Henry Zeffman. Uh, it's been a total... You know it's because we, we, we essentially joined the Times at the same time. And uh, it's been a total joy. And a lot of fun. And we've had far more fun than we could discuss on the radio. Uh, which is great. Best of luck with it. And we look forward to you coming back when the BBC shut down. <laughs> uh, Danny, thanks very much. Uh, we'll try and find Danny another partner. Uh, you're not here next week anyway, are you, Danny? No. That was so fun. So it's just to be me talking to myself. So lovely. Um, Henry, uh, good luck. Thank you. If I may, very quickly, I know you've got to go to the news. I mean, I think, you know, because you are so genial and so witty, people also lose track. Might I fear people might lose sight of just how amazing it is that you have managed to make politics so fun <laughs> and so without That's the boring bits for three years. Uh, it's an amazing show and um, though I will miss uh, appearing on it, um, I will be delighted to listen to it. And sadly, that's all we've got time for on the Red Box podcast. Massive thanks to Henry Zeffman for all of his brilliant analysis and mucking about over the last several years. He'll be genuinely missed. It's been an absolute pleasure working with him and we wish him all the best. Uh, Danny will be back very soon, hopefully with a new sparring partner. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.